Good afternoon and welcome to another edition of Money Talk. I'm Neil Kreisel and Diane Duver and I are your hosts every week right here on AM 1290, FM 96.9, and streaming at am1290kzsb.com. We're repeated at 11 and on Saturdays at 6. We're brought to you by Cornerstone Home Lending, whose highly trained and experienced team takes great pride in helping people with home financing, offering competitive rates and a wide array of loan programs. American Riviera Bank, smart banking for smart people in Santa Barbara, at Figueroa and Anacapa Streets, and in Montecito's Upper Village. At Arlington Financial Advisors, a leading wealth management firm in Santa Barbara, providing its clients with the personal care and attention of a small independent firm, coupled with the vast resources of a major financial institution. And we're here today with a special guest, Tom Sturgis, who's an entrepreneur, venture capitalist, businessman. And actually, if I had more space, I'd even add a few more things that Tom is doing, including being a sailor. So thank you so much for being here, Tom. My pleasure. And I just noticed that uh, coming in late is Diane Duver. Diane, what were you doing? Uh, watching daytime television? I was having technical difficulties over here. Sorry, I'm a little late today. How oh. are you doing, Neil, on this I'm doing, rainy I'm, day? I'm, do, I'm doing good. Say hello to Tom. Hi, Tom. Thanks so much for being here with us. So, so uh, as we always begin uh, with uh, interesting articles, I hope, uh, the first article was a feature article in yesterday's Wall Street Journal, and it was a feature on uh, Burton uh, Malkel, who um, is a um, very, very well-known academician and uh writer who wrote the famous book in 1972, A Random Walk Down Wall Street. And this is 50 years later. And the uh, piece in the journal was a review of the impact that that uh, article, that book had, which was significant. I remember at graduate school, this was a major point of study, uh, because what the thing, one of the major things that Mackle proposed is that the stock market uh, is efficient, and therefore uh, individual investing is not a productive enterprise. And um, when questioned in the Wall Street Journal uh, yesterday about uh, how he could believe that the stock market is efficient, uh, when we have all of these major gyrations, he said, quote, what I mean by efficient is that information gets reflected quite rapidly. It doesn't mean that prices are always right or even sane. And this is a misunderstanding of what the efficient market theory is. The efficient market theory says that when you have millions of investors, both on the sell side and the buy side, making decisions, ultimately the stock will go to the, uh, the, the, the right price. And to the extent that there are millions of millions of people doing that, you create an efficient market. And the irony of that is once people believe the market is efficient and stop doing fundamental research, ironically, the stock market becomes less efficient because the mechanism whereby you get efficiency is everyone doing their homework and therefore making sure the price ultimately gets to the right price um, is not uh, is not available because there's not enough people doing it. So you do get uh, periods where there is inefficiencies, but what Mackle is basically saying is that the uh, idea of individual investing 
is really, with few exceptions, and he does give credit to uh, a few investors who are very, um, uh, Warren Buffett, for example, and a couple of others, he said, but for the most part, he sticks by his thesis. You know, that's so interesting because you're always the one talking about the efficient market theory. And oftentimes we've seen over the last five years that we've had the show, Neil, when everybody's thinking about one thing, it does meaning, you know, ETFs or passive investing, it does lend itself to, you know, changing, changing the story or, or changing how we view things. If everyone's doing the same thing, it, the market is no longer efficient. Um. And speaking of efficiencies, the next two articles are about uh, management and about some of the mistakes managers make, which I think is really interesting given our guest today, Tom Sturgis, who is a superior manager. And when we start talking to him in the next segment, uh, we'll get some of his insights. But the two articles that uh, are, are we're going to talk about now, uh, one is about um, uh, Meta, old Facebook, and the other is about Eli Elon Musk. And the one about uh, uh, Facebook is entitled, this was in the Wall Street Journal on Sunday also, One Company's $800 billion Plunge. And um, this is the decline in market value of Facebook over the last year. And that's more than the article begins by saying, it's more than the market cap of almost every company in the S&P 500. Um, and uh, the article is focusing on the whole idea of what's called by a couple of professors, intelligent failure. And intelligent failure takes into account the uh, percentage, the probability of success or failure. And as uh, 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 Amy Edmondson of Harvard University, Harvard Business School said, uh, uh, what's right or wrong, the science of failing, uh, is that you shouldn't be betting uh, a outsized bet. Uh, if uh, possible, you make your bet as small as possible. And uh, the idea that you would bet the farm literally is something that uh, is outside the realm of what these professors believe is the proper risk gain. And whereas Zuckerberg was famous in betting the farm when he was in a garage, uh, as a college student, uh, this is no longer a, a bet in a garage. This is a bet of $800 billion in, in a major, major company. The other article, which is sort of, I think, even though it wasn't intended to go along together, is about uh, Musk and Twitter. And um, the article begins by saying uh, uh, Musk is treating Twitter like a startup. Uh, but Twitter isn't a startup. It's a mature company with lots of stuff. And the idea that you can take a mature company and make the kind of changes he's making so quickly is not in the view of this author or the professors that he cites, uh, prudent prudent management. Sorry? Can I throw a comment out on that? Yeah. In my experience, there's only two times you can make a fundamental change in an organization. Only two times. One is a change of ownership. And the second is a fear, an imminent fear of bankruptcy. Those are the times when the people inside the organization are actually amenable to the change. 
I'm not saying what Musk is doing is right or wrong. I don't know. But I will say from my experience that gradual, orderly, transitional change sounds great and doesn't happen and it doesn't yeah. work. Yeah. yeah, very good point. And I think that's what the article w was saying. And I think that's where, you know, uh, uh, Musk is missing the point uh, uh, and risking in the whole company. Uh, not only risking that company as Twitter, but also risking the financial backing of SpaceX and Tesla as well. Yes, that's a good point too, Diane. Uh, the next article in the New York Times is entitled Private Real Estate Funds Rise Even As Listed Rivals Tumble. And this is an interesting article. What they're saying is that REITs that are public are uh, doing very poorly in the stock market. But uh, private uh, REITs, that is those REITs that don't trade, that is they're like closed-end mutual funds, uh, are doing well. And then you look behind the reason they're doing well. They're doing well because they mark to market their assets uh, and uh, simply are looking at the asset value of those assets with their own marks. Whereas the REITs in the public market are basically having the either the benefit or the misfortune of being judged based upon what the market says. And I think that when you have a situation where you're self-marking assets, uh, the performance of it, particularly when it's against what the industry is doing, should be very suspect. Well, I mean, great opportunity. Tom, go ahead. Isn't it a great opportunity? Yeah. The public market frightened. And the assets are identical, and because they're held in public hands, they get oversold. That's that's the market god saying, "Come have some." Yeah, absolutely. Um, the uh, uh, the the uh, uh, the last article I have is uh, for today is why are tips uh, uh, down when inflation is so high? And it, just a little quick point here: um, these tips that are. Um, uh, Basically, uh, government bonds that are adjusted for inflation, uh, people are being uh, discouraged because their uh, tips are going down uh, when, in fact, they believe uh, if, in fact, it's working that their tips should be going up as interest rates go up. But what they miss the point is these tips are bonds. So if they buy a bond yesterday and interest rates go up today, the bond is going to go down as any other bond would when there are better alternatives with higher interest rates. And the only way it makes sense is if you hold to maturity, which you should hold to maturity. But if you're looking at your tip as uh, from a standpoint of a market that uh, can be used for liquidity, you, then you've bought the wrong asset. In fact, you're not even allowed to sell a thing for a year. And if you sell it within five years, I believe you have a 30-day penalty. So while tips make sense, if your hold is to maturity as a hedge against inflation, it, it really is not for everybody. Uh, you're, well, listening to, you're listening to Money Talk on AM 1290 and FM 96.9, and we'll be right back.
For prospective homebuyers, one of the most important steps of the loan process is getting clear and honest information from someone who will speak plainly and truthfully about loan programs and options. I'm Kelly Marsh, Vice President, California, of Cornerstone Home Lending, where our highly skilled and experienced team takes great pride in helping clients obtain home financing with honest, knowledgeable, fast, friendly, and efficient service. As a Santa Barbara native who has spent the past 20 years in the mortgage industry and has closed over 4,000 loans, I'd appreciate the opportunity to earn your business and invite you to visit the Kelly Marsh team.com or call my office at 805-563-1100 to learn more about how Cornerstone Home Lending can help you determine the best way to manage mortgage debt to achieve a more stable financial future. Licensed by the Department of Business Oversight under the California Residential Mortgage Lending Act. California Residential Mortgage Lending Act license number 41DB072220. California Financial Lending Law license number 60DB072528. Loan originator NMLS number 245822. Not a commitment to loan. Equal housing opportunity. Ranger Station, Ranger speaking. Hi. I'd like to report a bear hug. Uh, okay. Well, before I left my campsite, I was putting out my fire, and out of nowhere, Smokey Bear showed up and hugged me? So you drowned the fire, you stirred it, drowned it again, and felt that it was cold? Uh Uh-huh. Oh, yeah. He likes it when people correctly put out their campfires. He's pretty big on wildfire prevention. He's just letting you know you did good. With a uh, hug. He's a hugger. I just got a bear hug from Smokey Bear. (laughs) Status update! All right, I'm going to let you go now. I've got uh, a lot of uh, ranger stuff to do. There are many ways to start a fire, but one sure way to put it out. Learn how you can do your part at SmokeyBear.com. Only you can prevent wildfires. Sponsored by the U.S. Forest Service Ad Council and your state forester. Welcome back to Money Talk, brought to you by Cornerstone Home Lending. Since 1988, a mortgage banker and direct lender that believes in providing in-depth loan consulting to its customers in a personalized and honest manner. And we can be reached at 805-564-1290, or you could email us at moneytalk1290 at gmail.com. If you're just joining us, we have the pleasure of having with us Tom Sturgis, entrepreneur, venture capitalist, and international businessman. Tom, thank you so much for being here with us. We appreciate your time. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So tell us, how did you, where did you grow up and what was your early life like? Oh, my, uh, my, my early life was a long, long time ago. That's the first thing to say. So uh, I was born in 1950. I grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area in a little town called Walnut Creek. At the time there, there were about 5,000 people in Walnut Creek, probably about 100,000 now. And um, kind of a middle-class family environment. And uh, I was a spectacularly undistinguished student. And uh, I graduated. Uh, I graduated high school and decided after I graduated high school, it'd be a good idea to go to college, which isn't the way it's normally done. And probably the most exciting thing that happened to me in high school is I was accused of having stolen the answer key to the National Merit Scholarship qualifying examination because I was a uh, semifinalist in that. Although I'd never been an honor society, been ejected from school on a regular basis, and earned a few Fs along the way. Um, so yeah. Uh, this was in, and then in 1969, uh, my 19th birthday, I enlisted in the Marine Corps. So uh, that's kind of my early, nothing particularly exciting in it. Yeah. 
So, um, <laughs> so that that's kind of funny that they accused you of stealing the key answer key because you did too well on the test. There was no other logical explanation. <laughs> <laughs> so, fast forwarding to your time in the Marine Corps, you did spend you did do um, some time in Vietnam. And how would you say that experience with Vietnam shaped who you are today? Uh, yeah, I would say, look, just for the avoidance of doubt, my, if my service record book shows I've got 12 months in Vietnam. Um, it was an, an interesting time. It shaped my life. I was never shot at, all right, just to be crystal clear in that. By the same token, um, we didn't have any officers left when I was there, no staff NCOs left on my, ninth, on my 20th birthday. The skipper called me in and he said, uh, he's, because I was now 20 years old and I went to college for a semester, I was now gonna be an acting platoon leader. That's a second lieutenant's billet. And because he didn't have any staff non-commissioned officers or non-commissioned officers left, he was gonna promote me from Lance Corporal to Corporal. So as an E4, I had 50 Marines in a combat theater. And um, so what do I do, sir? And he said, you do what I tell you to do. You're a Marine, you know what to do. And it worked, it worked. Probably the most exciting thing there was a, off the coast of North Vietnam, a volunteers only mission to go into Laos on a prisoner of war rescue raid. And um, I stood in front of my platoon with my thumbs down and they all volunteered. Uh, fortunately, that mission didn't happen because we never would have made it. But uh, what I learned there was that I can actually make a difference in some environments and that when people if I decide that my job is to make sure that we work as a team and everybody gets what they need and every, I don't worry about who finishes first, I make sure nobody finishes last, that we everybody comes back and it's my responsibility to get people what they need, things seem to work out okay. It worked out well enough that I got a letter of commendation from the commanding general of the 3rd Marine Division and a couple of meritorious masks, a nice letter that ultimately helped me get into a very fancy business school back east, along with a lot better grades when I went back to college. So there's the succinct answer to your question. So so tell us, most of your um, business holdings, you are, you know, I can I can read your laundry list of, of, of who you are and what you do as the executive chairman of Blue Star Print Holding, the executive chairman of Tyra Group Limited in New Zealand and Lone Star Farms Limited. All in New Zealand, what's your connection to New Zealand and, and how did that come about? In 1995, I got diagnosed with cancer, 96. So I was a general partner in a private equity firm that we put together about 1987 before that. And um, I didn't know whether I was gonna live or die. And so uh, we decided that instead of raising, my wife at the time decided, instead of raising our kids in an upperly mobile, yuppie environment, urban environment, we were going to go someplace else. And it turned out I didn't die. And when you look at to go to someplace else, the, the list of places that have got good weather and they speak English, they know what the Magna Carta is, and they've got decent trout fishing, gets pretty short pretty fast. So I immigrated to New Zealand. Wow. So it was really just you and your wife decided to kind of it would, you know, a and lot of people did that through COVID, but very few people did that beforehand. So how, how were you welcomed to, to, uh, to New Zealand, New Zealand? Well, you know, the, the, the biggest, it's big, it's a bigger issue, New Zealand to the U.S. It's a bigger issue, uh, urban to very rural. So we wound up in a place that was halfway between a village of 700 and 4,000 people. 
and I've got an idyllic piece of property, which we I'm still own. Um, and my kids started school there. And uh, they, it, it's a great place. You know, it's very much like doing business in parts of the U.S. Not all of the U.S., but, you know, what you say is what you do. Your word matters. Um, everybody knows everybody. One guy is your customer, your competitor, your friend, and, and you're playing sport against them all at the same time. Well, so, what do people there think of what do people there think of Americans? The New Zealanders, the New Zealanders are very fond of Americans. They're not very fond necessarily of American foreign policy. They're not very fond of the exported consumer environment. But they remember uh, I, I walked in the Dawn Parade one time, which is on Anzac Day, and this fellow came up to me and says, "You know, us older ones, we, we we remember, we remember when the first Marine Division showed up in Wellington." In World War II, in the dark days, when there was no, all the New Zealand's men were off in Af North Africa fighting in World War II, and there was nobody between Hong Kong fell, Singapore fell, the Japanese were, were coming south. He said, "You you guys showed up." There's a there's a deep deep fundamental bond. Now, New Zealand is a non-aligned nation. It's it's not in any particular treaties with the U.S. anymore. The old ANZUS Treaty broke. But there's a great deal of mutual respect, and they're they're up to the play with American culture. And the business environment there um, is uh, conducive to entrepreneurial activities. Yeah, yeah. It used to be a socialist country. It was the most socialist country in the world. Then they went bankrupt. The International Monetary Fund quit funding the party, and so in the in the very traumatic transition. But no, it's an it's an entrepreneurial environment, and you know I. I I'm, I'm what I would call a bimodal investor. I buy really crummy companies with crummy management and crummy industries. And because that's where nobody like all the smart people that Diane puts her clients into, they, they don't invest in companies like I invest. So, you know, we buy, we buy stuff and make something out of it. That's what I did in the States. And um, that's what we do in New Zealand. So before you immigrated over to New Zealand, you were involved in a private equity yeah. company. And so tell us about I, that experience of, of you know, mid nineties, private equity is probably- Well, I'll tell you what- the, today. Yeah. So I'll, I'll, I'll give you the tagline that was on our tombstone in the Wall Street Journal. It was Wingate Partners, it's to acquire controlling equity interest in lackluster operating companies. That's, we put that out there in the public and we bought, Every dying industry with crappy management, we take a look at. So meatpacking, mobile home manufacturing, armored cars, really dull stuff. And then I'd go to work and use what learned in the Marine Corps, a little bit from Harvard, but mostly in the Marine Corps. And if you had a C in front of your name, CEO, COO, CIO, CMO, general counsel, I asked you to leave. We need your parking place. And then we would just take the next rank up. And we would say, my job is to get rid of everything that's been holding this company back. You don't worry about shareholders. You don't worry about your creditors. You worry about your, our employees' experience and our customers' experience. That's your job. And you tell me what you need. I'm going to give you twice what you need, twice as long as you need to do it, as you, you think you do. And you're going to tell me once a week in a little text or an email or a fax in those days, what more you need. If it's bad news or it's a possibility of bad news, you pick up the phone and call me immediately. If it's good news, don't worry about it. I'll find out about that sooner or later. That's what most of these companies needed because they were good market positions and they had crap leadership. And they just needed somebody to make sure they had 
sea rations, ammunition, a field of fire. They knew what their job was and that they were going to be taken care of. We were the best performing private equity firm from, from 1986 to 2006, according to Buyout Magazine, surveying 400 limited partners, 33% net IRR distribution over Wingate One. Very proud of that firm. You're listening no bankrupt. To- You're listening to Money Talk on AM 1290 at FM 96.9, and we'll be right back. When a bank is owned by the community and invests in the community, it answers to a different call. It's personal. It's driven by your needs, not ours. Welcome to American Riviera Bank, based right here in Santa Barbara with branches in Montecito and Goleta. Our customers know us for personal service, every day, every way. You can bank on us. Bank on us. Bank on us! American Riviera Bank. Bank on better. Come play at Ealings Park, whether it's by yourself, as a team, with your dog, on your bike, or soaring through the sky. Come play anytime, any day. For over 25 years, the Ealings Park Foundation has been dedicated to maintaining this beautiful open space and creating a place for the entire community to come play. Ealings Park is a remarkable environmental example of what is possible when people care about the best parts of their community and take ownership of wonderful facilities like our park. Ealings Park receives no financial support from any aspect of government and is completely self-supporting. So come visit the park today and support Santa Barbara's largest nonprofit park. Join the many Santa Barbans saying, Ealings is my park, and make it your park, too. For information, call 569-5611. That's 569-5611. Or visit online at www.elingspark.org. That's E-L-I-N-G-S-P-A-R-K dot org. Remember, one less spark is one less wildfire. Have fun without fire. In many areas, use of campfires and charcoal cookers are not allowed. Make that an advantage. Stargazing is better without firelight. Or listen to the forest at night when creatures really prowl. Hike in the moonlight with a flashlight. Bundle up and enjoy the warmth while sensing the chill that wild things feel. Make camping different this weekend and camp without a spark. The California Statewide Fire Prevention Campaign thanks you for your cooperation. Welcome back to Money Talk, brought to you by Arlington Financial Advisors, a leading wealth management firm founded on providing thoughtful, objective, and comprehensive financial guidance for families and entities who are seeking long-term financial confidence. And we can be reached at 805-564-1290, or you could email us at moneytalk1290 at gmail.com. So, Tom, given your vast um, experience in business as not only a uh, operator of business, but also an investor in business. You know, there's been lots of articles recently criticizing ESG investing, which is that, you know, socially responsible, environmental, social, and governance investing as not really helping the environment. What is your take on that, especially given your um, your ownership of, you know, methane mitigation ventures and other um socially responsible uh, companies? So I guess my observation would be whenever there's sudden large movements in capital structures and investment portfolios, 
the sharks are always swimming around right underneath the bait pole. So when we see large institutions, I won't mention any specific names, that for whatever reason divest themselves because of whatever pressures they feel of huge amounts of capital, it doesn't go unnoticed. So in my opinion, this is my opinion, I'm a sheep farmer, so you got to consider the source, right? But when, when those large sums of money get dislocated in the homes where they've been carefully built up and nurtured, sometimes over decades, and they get thrown into the, the, the marketplace and have to be absorbed someplace, there's always capital that will arise to take them. And in my opinion, much of that economic activity that those assets represented have just shifted out of the public market into the private market. And I can see it. I start getting solicited by investment banking firms, invest in our fill in the blank fund. And well, what does that really do? And you start looking what it's doing and their infrastructure assets, their exploration assets. The, the asset hasn't gone away. The pieces of paper haven't gone away, but there's been an exchange and they are, there's an excess of assets for sale. There's uh, the price is going to go down. That creates opportunity. And people who have more money and are liquid will get make more money. Now, having said that, the general notion that we invest consistent with our values is, in my opinion, fundamental. It's fundamental. That's how I invest my money has to be consistent with my values. Personally, I don't invest in cigarette companies. I, I just don't. And there are certain things that for my value system won't let me invest in. I think that's quite healthy. I think over the intermediate and long term, it's outstanding. In the in the interim and the grace, the less than graceful way that vast, vast portfolios were dumped. Uh, that's kind of tragic, really. I don't know if that's 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 my feeling. Now, so as a sheep farmer, you know, do you it's interesting your your diversity of business, right? From a sheep farmer to private equity to a manufacturer. How do you become an expert in all those different diverse um, industries and still feel like you have you, you have a commanding knowledge of it all? I don't have a commanding knowledge of any of them. I have a useful knowledge of human behavior. I keep a liquid balance sheet. And I look for fundamentals. So we bought 35 over about uh, seven years, about 35 bankrupt sheep and beef farms in New Zealand. And I started studying the sheep industry. And at one time, myself and two other guys bought the old Swift Independent Packing Company, losing about uh, $30, $40 million a quarter. And we uh, got that tidied up, made about $150 million bucks, and sold it to uh, ConAgra. But my point where I'm going on this is we then started a genetic development program and a market user program. So we've developed new genetics, new end user markets. So our commodity sheep now command about a 60% premium in the marketplace. And then it took me three years to negotiate this, but we negotiated a premium. So 75% of that extra money actually goes back to the farmer, not to the processor, not to the retailer, not to the middleman. When we do that, we can start taking a sub profit, marginally profitable business. It doesn't turn into great business, but we can turn it into a three to 5% return on assets business. So that 12,500 New Zealand sheep farmers actually make enough money that they can start to embrace things like measuring their carbon footprint, getting involved in methane mitigation, paying their employees a living wage, and quit being peasants on their land and start being free, free, free men, free women that can hold their head up when they go into the bank. That's been a very exciting 
evolution. I'm, I'm real proud of the job that our team does on that. Well, were you so able to? Do, were, were you able to make that uh, this story clear to the people in New Zealand? I mean, does everyone realize what you've done? I, what, I, what we, what we, not me, what we are doing, right? So after about two years of getting gassy about it and not getting much stuff, I finally said to hell with it. So I changed about 100,000 ewes over to our genetics. And um, we are ramping up to do 2 million lambs with that. And our, our product called Lumina, L-U-M-I-N-A lamb, is now a spoken for and requested product by uh, Michelin one-star chefs around the world. It's a truly superb product. We did the same thing with New Zealand King Salmon, a product called Aura King, which you'll find in sushi restaurants. We ate at the, well, the Miramar's uh, uh, sushi restaurant they just opened up, right? And the guy's serving said, this is New Zealand salmon. I said, it's not New Zealand salmon. This is Aura King salmon. This is the finest salmon in the world. And he said, actually, you're right. I said, I know I'm right. I know the taste. I was chairman of the company for seven years. We're the ones that did it. It's a lot of fun, Neil. So did he give you dinner for free? Absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> so do you think that type of thinking and um, really innovation is something that could happen here in the U.S. within the farming market? Or do you think it's too convoluted with government subsidies to actually have that happen? I think human behavior is a wonderful thing and we want to do the right thing. There's a terrific opportunity here in, uh, in California um, to take our, our ruminants and um, use a series of sec techniques championed by a guy named Alan Savory, Savory Institute, they, and enter into a regenerative grazing pasture. And it's starting to happen. You know, we, we, we're so easy, quick to be critical, um, but it is happening around us. Now, the pace of change, is it fast enough? I don't know. Um, I, I work intimately with the New Zealand government in development of technologies with this stuff. They're a funding partner in our science that we're using for methane mitigation. So we have um, we have positions in uh, Asparagopsis armata, red seaweed, which in vitro reduces 95% of the methane out of a rumen. In vivo, we can get it up to about 60%. It's a work in progress, and it's a great collaboration. It's certainly available here in the United States. It's harder. It's harder. And the incumbent establishment gets nervous. But can't you? But it. But your experience uh, could, if you can, explain it to Americans uh, that it's not only good for the environment; it also can be profitable. Uh, would be an incentive for some people here to start doing what you did. Well, I'll take care of where I'm at in New Zealand in my patch, right? If I can, and the reason being is New Zealand about sixty percent of the greenhouse gases are actually from ruminant belching. Proportionally, it's a much bigger issue in that little tiny country. If we can do that, it would allow New Zealand to, to be in the bully pulpit and show the rest of the world what can be done. And enteric fermentation, which is what I'm talking about here, and, and methane, natural gas, has a much shorter half-life than CH4. It's about 14% of the current greenhouse gas coalition, greenhouse gas emission issue right now. All right. That's public awareness. If you're a you're, California dairy farmer, you're well aware of this issue. You're you're listening to Money Talk on AM 1290, and we'll be right back. It's
It's a fact. Successful wealth management is built on strategies that focus on the big picture, take a long-term view, and establish deep and valued relationships. Hello, I'm Diane Duva, founding partner at Arlington Financial Advisors, Santa Barbara's trusted family guide, empowering you to make more informed and confident decisions. At Arlington Financial Advisors, we bring order and balance to your financial life by monitoring and managing risk so you can focus on your work, family, and enjoying the moment. We are a fully independent firm offering strategic financial planning, estate and tax planning, and private money management. Our plans and portfolios are handcrafted using a rigorous and disciplined approach, supported by a consistent yet highly personalized client experience. Our clients look to Arlington Financial Advisors as a home away from home, a comfortable place to protect what they've accomplished while they prepare for what comes next. Please visit ArlingtonFinancialAdvisors.com or call me, Diane Duva, at 805-699-7300. The Storyteller Children's Center is a therapeutic preschool that provides high-quality early childhood education for homeless and at-risk children in Santa Barbara County. Here's Susan Cass. So Storyteller Children's Center is a therapeutic preschool program that really focuses on largely the social and emotional needs. And then in addition to that, we're looking at the entire family unit and what their needs are. So what we're trying to do at Storyteller is not just look at the child and their academic needs, but looking at the whole child and the whole family. And then we also provide the children at no cost to their families a healthy breakfast, lunch, and snack every single day. The best way to reach us for information is on our website. You know, it's a available in English and Spanish. And there is enrollment information and application information, as well as ways to give. That's StorytellerCenter.org. To learn more about the Storyteller Children's Center, go to StorytellerCenter.org. That's StorytellerCenter.org. Or call 805-682-9585. Welcome back to Money Talk, brought to you by American Riviera Bank, making your life easier with cutting-edge technology, mobile deposits, free use of every ATM machine in the country, and a level of service other banks can only dream about. You know, Tom, while we were on the break, we were talking about leadership, and really that's what it took to, um, you know, for you to really lead the path of showing the New Zealand farmers that doing business differently can can make a real big difference, not only to the environment, but also to their pocketbook. So, you know, given all the talk in the news today about leadership, you know, whether it be, you know, Elon Musk or Mark Zuckerberg or, you know, any pick an article that Neil spoke about at the top of the hour, um, what do you think are the qualities that make a good leader? Well, you know, sometimes, yeah, what makes a good leader? A leader, a leader thrives if the leader is able to provide those whom he or she would lead with what they want. Now, they may not be aware of what they want very frequently, all right? But if a leader doesn't, it's much more about doing than it is grandiose, bellicose, dash. It's, leadership is doing, not dash. So if my Marines were fed if, if we worked together as a team, if we were proud of ourselves, if we knew we did everything right, we would stand out and be so outstanding. We would embarrass all the other platoons that were led with officers and had staff NCOs. What a friggin' giggle would that be? And we did. And we got extra liberty, right? Just make sure that that's what happens, which means that there are no dummies. There are no weak people. 
the little guys are useful as hell. The big, strong guys are useful as hell. It's a team. If you don't want to be in this team, I will remove you from the team and send you to somebody else's team. That is not a threat. It's an absolute promise. We are going to win and excel together. Boy, that's so that's different. That. That, that is so different from what Musk is saying right now. It's just the op- actual opposite. I'm not Leon. I don't really, I, I observe. I, I do know that when I buy in my S&P 500 uh, invest index fund, the only share stock I don't, I had it specifically removed by Goldman was, um, was Tesla. Not because it's not a great company. It's just because the valuation is so absurd. So, you know, I, that's what makes sense to me. And so, you know, we started talking about, you know, what your takeaways were from the Marines. And it's interesting that your leadership after all these years later, you know, you, you, you diminished your service to the country by saying, oh, it was only 12 months and I was, I was never under fire. But really a lot of those key points that you've taken with you throughout the course of your life, growing and building all of these very successful companies come down to that same leadership um, conversation that we just had about really that inclusiveness you know the term gung-ho you heard that term gung-ho and everything's just john wayne and a hand grenade or something that's not what gung-ho came from gung-ho came from the chinese labor battalions the colonel merrill saw 500 men pulling a roller to smooth out an airfield at the start of world war ii in china and he saw these guys work together and they would go gung-ho gung-ho that's where it came from all together all right. That's our core value. So we ask this of all our guests who have to, who do business in Santa Barbara and, you know, with new technology and with uh, uh, the internet uh, more and more uh, entrepreneurs are finding it, a, finding themselves able to, to, to run a business from, from, from a small city like Santa Barbara, but you really have an international business of some size and, uh, when you're in Santa Barbara, do you feel that you're not in the same control that you are when you're more hands-on in a particular location? Neil, you use the word control. Control is an illusion. Um, what what I find, I use two iPads and I have a great PA and the women who run our two biggest businesses, we talk on a regular basis. It doesn't matter where I am. It really doesn't. If, if, if me being gone for a week is a big deal, then there's something wrong with the leadership structure inside our companies. They, the, the, we, we run shared values, shared norms, touch wood, we keep liquidity, we do the right thing, and I'll back you. You make the call, I'm not there, you, you know what our values are, you make the call, I'm going to back you, hell or high water. And if I'm pissy about it, it's going to be between you and me, but I'm going to back you every time. I, I think- I think I can ask you. I think I can ask you this question because I'm older than you. What do you do about succession? What do you do about making sure that the companies uh, outlast you when you're as good an entrepreneur and a, and a manager as you are? It has to be daunting to think about how the companies can run without you. Do you? Do, do you? What are your? Pl- how do you make sure that that this goes far beyond you? I only hire people that are better than me. So that makes it real easy. But the main thing is, in my estate, when I die, there's about a three-year window there where the managers have the ability to buy the company for themselves and their families. I'll take back enough. There has to be evaluation, but I'll take back. The estate takes back enough paper to make sure that it can happen. And God bless and go forth. And 
do what you think needs to be done for the best for the people in our company and our customers today, not what the old man would have said five years ago, 10 years ago. You don't want a dead man's hand on the throttle. Well, which is interesting because so, so many companies now are selling uh, to um, investors and are leaving their employees out. And I guess the, the, uh, the, the plan you have in place is a good motivating factor for your people. It depends where they are, and you know, but yeah, the top in our companies because they tend to be small companies between 500 to 1,500 employees, the four of them. Um, yeah, I mean, if, if we do the right thing in the markets, generally over time, we are rewarded. And you know, money's like manure, it just stinks when you pile it up, it needs to be spread around to do any good. <laughs> and so, so Tom, given, given your answer there, when do you see yourself working until you can no longer work? You don't see. I don't know. I work, don't work. Hell, I don't know. You know, uh, the guys are, you know, the gals are close enough. They say, you know what? You're sticking the joint up. Just go ride your motorcycle or go fishing or go do something else. But, you know, it's, this isn't about me. It's about our teams. That's a, that's a great um, perspective. And especially given your um, response on leadership, I think that's probably the recipe to your success of your companies that you empower people to make decisions and you back them up on them. So I, I really- Diane, here's the big threat. I say, we have a problem. I know we have a problem and I have an idea. And we all know what happens with my ideas. So you guys better figure something out good because otherwise we're going to use my truly guaranteed crappy idea. Right. <laughs> oh, that's great. <laughs> uh, you're listening to Money Talk on AM 1290 and FM 96.9, and we'll be right back with our final segment. For prospective homebuyers, one of the most important steps of the loan process is getting clear and honest information from someone who will speak plainly and truthfully about loan programs and options. I'm Kelly Marsh, Vice President, California of Cornerstone Home Lending, where our highly skilled and experienced team takes great pride in helping clients obtain home financing with honest, knowledgeable, fast, friendly, and efficient service. As a Santa Barbara native who has spent the past 20 years in the mortgage industry and has closed over 4,000 loans, I'd appreciate the opportunity to earn your business and invite you to visit the Kelly Marsh team.com or call my office at 805-563-1100 to learn more about how Cornerstone Home Lending can help you determine the best way to manage mortgage debt to achieve a more stable financial future. Licensed by the Department of Business Oversight under the California Residential Mortgage Lending Act. California Residential Mortgage Lending Act license number 41DB072220. California Financial Lending Law license number 60DB072528. Loan originator NMLS number 245822. Not a commitment to loan. Equal housing opportunity. When a bank is owned by the community and invests in the community, it answers to a different call. It's personal. It's driven by your needs, not ours. Welcome to American Riviera Bank, based right here in Santa Barbara with branches in Montecito and Goleta. Our customers know us for personal service every day, every way. You can bank on us. Bank on us. Bank on us! American Riviera Bank. Bank on better. Keyboard Cat, Hamilton the Pug, and Toast Meets World. These are some of the Internet's most beloved pets. And they all have one thing in common. Their stories started in a shelter. Start your story. Adopt a dog or cat today. Visit theshelterpetproject.org to find a pet near you. 
Training that pet to play the keyboard, that's optional. Start a story. Adopt a shelter or rescue pet today. Brought to you by Maddie's Fund, the Humane Society of the United States and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Money Talk, brought to you by Arlington Financial Advisors, a leading wealth management firm founded on providing thoughtful, objective, and comprehensive financial guidance for families and entities who are seeking long-term financial confidence. Tom, as, as a successful business person and entrepreneur, you have also really um, dove headfirst into, into your nonprofit work, both in Santa Barbara and in the rest of the country. Please share with us some of your some of your organizations that you're involved in and and why and, and what drew you to them. Okay, I'll make this short in the interest of time. So let's see. In Santa Barbara. So I chair finance committee and I'm on the incentive uh, of the investment and executive committee for direct relief, which as far as a single entity, you know, we ship out two billion dollars fair market value of ethical pharmaceuticals to 80 countries around the world on about a 30 million dollar operating profit as far as leverage. And it's just off the charts. I love that that organization. It's a great um, organization. I'm on the finance committee and the board of the Foundation for Hospice of Santa Barbara, which is near and dear to my heart. Um, I'm very deeply involved with um, the arts and lecture series at UCSB, which I think does a terrific job about lifting the discourse, the public discourse that's so available to us, fortunately here. I'm involved with Nature Conservancy Catalyst Fund, which particularly in the California Conservancy and the Nature Conservancy in New Zealand. I'm involved with uh, Eco America, which is a public consciousness awareness about what's going on with uh, global warming uh, in the country. It has a good presence here in Santa Barbara. Um, oh boy, what else? The American Prairie Reserve, which is attempting to establish a national Park about the size of the Yellowstone, privately funded in the Upper Missouri River, which is well underway. The Wildlife Conservation Network out of San Francisco, which has endangered species, proactive programs with endangered species, very well-run organization. Big supporter of the overhead of the Bucket Brigade when the Bucket Brigade was, when Abe was getting that thing up and running. Africa Women Arising, another Santa Barbara charity. Linda Cole runs a big supporter and fan of of that highly efficient, highly effective organization um, operating in Africa. That's, there are a few others around the place, but that's a flavor. The Channel Island Foundation, yeah. And then I, ha I have to ask, you know, where do you find the time to be, you know, actively participating along with running your several huge companies um, that have a huge impact internationally? Well, you're not gonna believe the answer. I got all the time in the world. So I, I go to bed at 8.30 at night. I get up about five in the morning. I sit and pray for about two hours. Then I go to a, a prayer group for an hour. Then I get some exercise. I've got great people that work with me and I try to learn how to separate the chicken salad from the chicken shit and mm -hmm. just you know mm -hmm. focus on the stuff that makes a difference. And I, here's what I don't do. I don't watch television. I don't go to professional sport events. I don't read a lot of novels. I read voraciously, but not a lot of nonfiction. I'm very careful what I let into my consciousness and what I, what I spend my time on. That's, that's pretty remarkable. And although we already spoke about legacy and so, or I should say, we talked about succession planning, you know, I would love to know from you what you would want your legacy to be. I would want my legacy to be wrapped in a piece of cotton muslin and married, buried someplace with a view and an oak tree planted on me. If that was a, 
a local oak tree. That'd be great legacy. Well, that, that you know, uh, that's very humble, but uh, you are creating a legacy with all of the things that you've been doing and all of the jobs you created and all of the environmental things that you're doing. I haven't created any of it. I haven't created any of it. It's all team sport and it's all around values and it's set up to where if there are assets left, they all flow to, I think, take, you know, make sure Heather's got what she you know needs, not screw up my kids' lives by giving them a bunch of money, which is nothing but a curse. And um, the rest of it, there's plenty of good, good uses for it. Yeah. Well, the reason that's really humble, is, among other things, is that when you get out of Harvard Business School, how many of those graduates become bond traders versus people who are creating jobs and creating uh, scientific solutions to our environmental problem? And I think that well, is Neil, a legacy. My classmates, I looked at my classmates and I said, you know, they're all smarter than me. They're better looking <laughs> than me. They're better connected to me, the more hardworking, wherever they're going, I'm going the opposite direction as fast as I can. <laughs> well, I'm glad you went in that direction. And I, and I wish more people would follow you. Um, thank you so much for all you do. Uh, thank you for taking the time to, to be with us. Um, uh, and thank you, Diane, for showing up, even though you showed up late. Uh, you've been listening to Money Talk on AM 1290 and FM 96.9. And we'll see you next week.